eventually get to Luke 13, but we are going to start in Exodus 20. Continuing to tell the story of Luke, uh, the sto- well, the story Luke tells about Jesus, that is what we are continuing to do uh, this morning, and we are, as we, as we walk through this story in Luke 13, the narrative is going to start to take a subtle, uh, a, a subtle turn. You may have noticed it just a little bit uh, last week, but you'll see it a lot this week. Uh, the narrative is going to start to take this, this, this turn and kind of buried in the subtext what you're going to see is that, uh, that, that things start to shift a little bit for Jesus and for uh, his, his disciples uh, in, this part, in, in this part. In fact, you could almost entitle this little section here, uh, you could almost entitle it, This is What Got Jesus Killed. Uh, and, and that is kind of what is happening right here in Luke. So if you're uh, if you're if you're charting this, this is kind of the rising action in the story as we build towards uh, something, and it's going to blow your mind just a little bit uh, if you're not familiar with the debates that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the the things that he argued about. Uh, it's going to blow your mind just a little bit about what got him killed, or at least what we see this morning, what kind of helped him take another step down that uh, path. As many Christians around the world began the season of Lent this uh, past Wednesday, 40 days headed toward the cross. We in the book of Luke are about to head in the same direction. Now, there is no way, it took us a year to get through Luke 1 through 12. There is no way we are going to get to Luke 24 in 40 days. Just not going to happen. So we're we're not quite going to make it uh, at, at that speed, but we have decisively made a turn here in chapters 12 and uh, 13, and, and perhaps this is why Jesus spends so much time in Luke 12 encouraging us to understand the signs of the times of what is about to happen. So here's what I want to do uh, this morning. I'm going to go way back into the Old Testament in order to set the stage for what happens here in Luke 13 in the New Testament. So half of this sermon is going to be Old Testament background, which I'm sure you're like, "Woo, that sounds exciting. Uh, but it's going to be Old Testament background, and then it's going to be the application of what happens as a result of that Old Testament background when we get to Luke 13. If someone asked you why there were so many things in the Old Testament that Christians don't observe today, what would you tell them? Why are there so many different, different laws and different things in the Old Testament that seem completely obsolete and completely out of touch with today but we do not practice them today. How would you explain it? What if they said you were a hypocrite because you only practiced some of the Bible and not all of the Bible? Generally speaking, I think most of us would say something about how Jesus changes things uh, and, and it's just different now somehow. I think that would be pretty much the conversation that most of us uh, would have. Like that's generally where we would go. Something about Old Testament and New Testament, may, maybe something about Old Covenant, New Covenant, and Jesus. But most of us, I don't think, would be able to articulate why things are different now and why we don't practice all the things in the Old Testament. If you go back about 50 years uh, here in Tennessee, this actually would have been a hot topic of debate where almost every city council and county commission would be talking about it. And you're like, like really? 
city councils would be talking about why we don't practice things that are in the Old Testament? Well, sort of. Because the hot debate in the 60s and the 70s would often have been in many of these county uh, and statewide conversations would be what level of commerce should be allowed on Sundays? How much stuff should you be able to sell on Sundays? Should stores be open? Now today here in Tennessee, there are still remnants of this debate. If you go to Food City right now, you cannot buy wine or beer. There is restriction on sales for that on Sundays. And this is a holdover from what are called blue laws. And prior to the the, the 60s, early 70s, it would have been hard to find anything really outside of grocery stores that would be open on Sundays. Most stores would be closed and uh, and shut down. And this is because Sunday was considered the Lord's Day, and it was immoral to work on the Lord's Day, what they would have even called the Sabbath. If you were to ask uh, your, your grandparents, they would tell you uh, it is, uh, a, a, a lot of them would tell you even now it's immoral to go shopping or to mow your yard uh, or to do any kind of work, do the laundry, do much of anything at all on Sundays. You were expected to take Sundays off as a day of rest. It's why so many of us who grew up in the South, the default day for dinner at Mamaw's would sun- be Sunday afternoon because there was nothing like you, you weren't supposed to be shopping that day. You weren't, weren't supposed to be working that day. You were supposed to be resting. And so this was the day for family dinner after church on Sundays. You would go there and you would hang out there because that was, that was really all there was to do on that day. Now, much of that has, has begun to change, almost completely fade today as malls are open, Walmart is open, Texas Roadhouse is open, El Cezanne is open. You can go to all these places after church on Sunday and you can eat. Most of it is gone. Uh, about the only thing that's still closed on Sundays is Chick-fil-A at this point. Uh, that's pretty much uh, it. Although I did find one county in New Jersey that still holds to these blue laws today. It's actually a pretty uh, fascinating uh, story. And here's what the, uh, the, the law for this county says uh, in New Jersey. It says, uh, yeah, there it says, prohibits the sale on Sunday of clothing or wearing apparel, building and lumber su- supply materials, furniture, home, business, or office furnishings, household, business, or office appliances. I don't know how... You parcel out what you can and what you can't buy. I don't know if there's like super Walmart, if you can shop in like half the store and not the other half. I don't know how that works. I don't know how they apply that, but that is still there. They have tried to repeal that a couple of different times, and the citizens of those counties have have soundly voted this down. And this is not like some obscure county. This is uh, a county that's really pretty close to the the Meadowlands, like where the the stadium is uh, in New Jersey. It's It's a populous county. And somehow it is still there. I was reading an article about this because I think it's kind of a, a wild story how this is still a thing. And uh, here it, it, was, it was like 11 things you need to know about the, the Bergen County blue laws. All right. And this is number one. Put that, that picture up there. It's hard for you to see this. But the number one thing you need to know, it says you can blame it on Rome. The idea of setting one day per week aside for leisure is said to date back to the Roman Emperor Constantine about 1,700 years ago. To which when I read that, I was like, 
hang on. I think you've got to go back a little bit further than 1,700 years ago. My assumption is they're talking about Constantine's reforms in, three, uh, in 312, whenever Christianity became the law of the land, and he probably instituted a day of rest as part of the laws. Uh, but this feels a little bit like, like this reporter where like most of us would look at each other and be like, who wants to tell him? Like, who, who wants to tell him that this is not where this began? Uh, where did Constantine get this idea from? Uh, so you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and maybe we'll get a hint of where Constantine may have gotten this idea to shut things down one day a week. Exodus 20, verse 8. This is the middle of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So what we have here is one of the Ten Commandments, and I don't have near enough time to dig into the Ten Commandments uh, and, and talk about all the, all the things that are happening here and how they all work together. But in order to understand what we're going to see in Luke 13, we have to, and, and, and what's going on there and why something like this, like what happens on a Sabbath day, would eventually get Jesus killed, uh, you've got to understand a little bit of the background. So the law is given in the Old Testament, and the, the Ten Commandments is kind of the the, the initial giving and the overarching law given to uh, the God's, God's people in Israel to teach people about, let me say it this way, the law is given in the Old Testament to teach Israel about who God is, about who they are, and how they are to please God. And then how they are to make atonement for all the times that they do things that do not please God. Now, that is a very, very, very general statement about a very deep theological thing, but I think it holds up. And the law still holds that role today, but just a little bit differently. So the analogy that I have used before, if you've been around, you've heard me use this analogy, but it's the perfect one, so, uh, so I, I keep going back to it. Uh, the, the law is what we would call a diagnostic tool. So, so what does that mean? About 13 years ago, almost to the, to the day, I was wrestling with Abby, who at the time would have been like three years old. I was wrestling with Abby in the floor of our home in Knoxville at the time. And as we were wrestling, I bent down in a position that I don't think I've ever been able to get in since. Uh, but you're like down in a position where like my knees were, were bent like this, and I was down wrestling with her, and she did something. She moved in one way, and I went to grab her, and when I did, a loud pop happened in my knee, like enough to where Abby jumped back, and I was like, ow, went down, and she like kept trying to tackle me and come after me, and I was like, get off of me. Uh, Emily was on the other side of the room, and she heard it uh, as well. It was, uh, it was not good. It was not good at, at all. I immediately started Googling, how do you know if you've torn your ACL? Like, I needed to know, is that what just happened? And basically what it said is if your knee doesn't swell in the first hour, you probably did not tear your ACL. It's probably something else. It didn't say what the something else was, 
It just says it was probably uh, something else. So I gave it some time, no swelling. So I'm like, all right, maybe I dodged a, a bullet there. But it was still very sore, very sore. Abby thought it was hilarious. She started talking all the time about how she broke daddy's knee. Uh, and uh, I did not think it was as funny. Uh, you fast forward about a week or so, and I was, I was walking, uh, and at the time I was, I was running some, like a youth basketball league for the church that I was, I was working for, uh, and uh, I was walking around the, the, the gym, and as I was walking around the, the gym, walking in a straight line, still with a little bit of a limp, thinking, all right, this is going to heal, I'll be fine, and somebody yelled my name, and as I turned, like my knee just completely gave out, and I just wiped out on the floor. Right next to the, right on the baseline of the gym where everybody could see me. And I would just go down, I'm grabbing my knee. Several people run over and had to like pick me up and like help me over to the, to the bench. It was not, it was very painful and uh, a little bit embarrassing. So I set up an appointment with KOC. They sent me to get an MRI. They confirmed that my ACL was in good shape. My meniscus, however, was sliced into and missing a huge chunk. And so uh, I had to end, ended up having to get my knee scoped, had to get it, uh, the, the meniscus cleared up, and, and all was good. Uh, but I, I had to go in there, and they had to take that MRI in order to see what was going on with my knee and figure out what was wrong with me. Now, that MRI did not fix my knee at all. I still had to have surgery a month later to repair the, the meniscus. The machine had no power to heal me, but it was necessary for me and for my doctor to know the extent of my injury and to direct the doctor toward the appropriate remedy. This is how the Old Testament law works for us. It reveals things about us that we could not see otherwise. We would not know without the aid of this diagnostic tool exactly what is wrong. It doesn't matter how we use it, it's not going to heal us. You know, once I sat in that thing, laid back, had to get over my extreme claustrophobia that I have, uh, and laid on that thing and, and, and let it do its thing for 20 minutes, like, it doesn't matter how long I stayed in there, it was never going to make me better. I was never going to be healed. It simply revealed what the problem was so that the doctor could know what was needed in order to fix it. It was never meant to heal me. That is not what an MRI does. And so that is what you need to keep in mind whenever you read the Old Testament law, when you read the Ten Commandments, when you read this command about the Sabbath. It is there to reveal things about your heart. It is there to diagnose something within you. You say, how does a command to set aside a day teach me anything about my heart. Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you three very quick observations about this, the, 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 this specific commandment of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you three very quick observations because this is not even what the text is about. We'll get there in Luke 13, but you need to see this, in, again, in order to understand verse, verse 13. So the first observation is that whenever you read Exodus 28 through 11, this commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, it teaches us about rest. So the first thing it teaches us is that we need to rest. It is a call for us to stop our work. No, this is everyone, the servants, everybody. There's no getting around this. We are to stop our 
progress, to stop ordering our lives around commerce, labor, production, and instead go in exactly the opposite direction. We are called to stop. There are few things that fly in the face of human nature than this. We as people are generally wired to work. Even if we hate it, we are wired to do it. The human body will malfunction if it is at rest for too long. It is in our body's uh, physiology the need to work. The thing is, the human body will also malfunction if we just work. And that is all that we do. And so what is built in here is, is a, a, a rhythm that requires us to stop and rest. And when you think about the context in which Israel received this command, they had just come out of a culture where all they knew was work. And whenever you say work, they're not talking about sitting at a desk, reading a book, pump, you know, putting out spreadsheets. We're talking about hard physical labor. And so what, what God says is you need to stop working for at least one day. And there are few things more accepted in our culture right now than to live in the opposite direction of this. When you say, how are you doing? And somebody responds, busy. That's kind of met with like a wink and a nod. Like, yeah, I get it. That is life. That is what we do. We are busy. And yet God stands in direct opposition of all that. And he says to his people, do not be that way. You be different. You function differently. Your economies may or may not take a hit. Your production may or may not go down. Your bodies may or may not get stronger. None of that matters. I've declared that one of these days you are going to stop and you are going to rest. It is going to be for me. And God is teaching us that, for, that, that our rest for one Sabbath day per week is an act of faith. It shows, it shows to ourselves and to those closest to us and to the rest of the world, that even though this flies in the face of all that seems to make sense, and all that your mind tells you to do, that I'm going to rest anyway because he has called me to do it. Now this is the context of the Old Testament, the giving of the law, and to say, I've got to shut this down. And it requires all of God's people to say, I am trusting you, God, that life won't fall apart for me if I give this day back to you. That is the context that all of this happens in the Old Testament. It acknowledges that rest is a necessary part of things. And so the, 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 the next question comes, well, is that something that we need today still? We'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Hang on there. But for now, what we can see is in the context that is given, that is what is required. Listen to how the psalmist says it in Psalm 4, 7, and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and the new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. The idea of the Sabbath is that we can lie down and we can rest because we trust that God has it all in control. He is the one that we trust in all of this. So the first thing that we need to, be, need to see is that the Sabbath is given in this context for rest. But then it has other implications as well, some other observations that we want to be able to 
see. The second is recognition. Verse 11, it says, For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So what we want to see here is the Sabbath is a built-in cycle into the lives of God's people. Every seven days, it recognizes who created us, it recognizes who created the world, and who established this pattern within creation. God gives Moses uh, a reason here for, 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 for this command, and that's because God made everything in six days, but he chose to rest on seven days. Not because God needed the rest, or because he had to do that, but because he was st- establishing the pattern by, by which creation would, would flourish in this pattern. So as his creation, we must recognize that God had both a plan and a pattern for his creation to follow. And as we can honor that, as his people honor that pattern, we are effectively saying this is how it, we are supposed to work. This is the pattern God has given us. God hasn't made us just to keep going and going and going, but that you should, you should stop working and you should pursue that rest because it recognizes the pattern God has established. And then the third thing, and hang with me here, because we're going to come back and tie all this in here in just a few minutes. Third thing is that the, this command is given for us in order to remember. Now, in order to see this, you need to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have a second list of the Ten Commandments. Now, this is not a second giving of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy is effectively a couple of long sermons about the law that Moses gives. And this is Moses kind of giving his commentary on the law. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. This is right after the giving of the command about the Sabbath. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here Moses points in a different direction. He doesn't point to creation. Instead, he points to redemption. He says that it helps us to remember redemption. It helps us to remember when God saved us, when he set us free. And so that is another purpose that it served. The Sabbath is an intentional rhythm in the life of God's people so that they will stop everything weekly and they are reminded of what God has done. So take all three of those things together. The Sabbath teaches us to rest in God's sovereignty and goodness, to recognize our own limitations of our striving, and then to remember the redemption that God has provided on your behalf. And then let's, let's, let's remember the purpose of the law is to diagnose our hearts, to let us see inside ourselves and where things have gone wrong so that we can understand what is needed for a remedy. All right? So the three things that, that, that the Sabbath command teaches us and then what the purpose of the law is to teach, to teach us about our hearts. Now, with all of that background, let's go to Luke 13. And this is where we're going to see a story take place that challenges this law about the Sabbath. Luke 13, verse 10. 
as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and what he does here, uh, what, he, what he does here is, is about to make the people so angry that this becomes the last time we ever see Jesus teaching in a synagogue. This is the last time he's invited by the, the, a ruler of a synagogue or a rabbi. He, this is the last time he's ever invited to come and speak because he makes people so mad because of what he does here. And all he did is see a woman in need of healing, in bondage to years of physical deformity attributed to a spirit, and he shows her kindness and compassion before she even asks him for it. And he heals her so that she can now stand upright and be free of this bondage she has been under. But now see how people respond in verse 14. The leader of the synagogue, this is not a rabbi, this would be kind of like the guy in charge, like, a, like an executive pastor would, would kind of serve today. Uh, the leader of the synagogue, that's, that's a rough analogy. The leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, uh, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So he doesn't directly rebuke Jesus. He more rebukes the crowd, even though this lady had not even asked for Jesus to do this. She had not even asked him to do it. Jesus took it on his own initiative. Uh, but the, the, the job of this ruler of the synagogue was to kind of keep things in order. So when things start to go off the rails just a little bit, he's the one that's got to kind of bring everything back in and kind of hold everything together. He's probably a Pharisee, uh, but notice he doesn't marvel at all at what Jesus did. Almost takes it for granted that Jesus just healed this person. He's not saying, wow, that's amazing that this happened. He just goes right past it and, 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 and says, look, we've got six other days that you can do this. Can you figure out a different day to do this? Is it really necessary for you to do this right now? And then Jesus answers him and says, hypocrites, this is verse 15. Doesn't each of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? So Jesus looks at them and he says, you guys have got some crazy rules. He says, look, you've got all these rules surrounding the Sabbath. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees a lot. The Pharisees didn't just, didn't just follow the law. They followed the law that made sure that they could follow the law. And then they followed the law that made sure they could follow the law that they could make sure they followed the law. So they, they would, like, build out these barriers to make sure they didn't get anywhere close to breaking God's law that's what the pharisees would do and he says look you've got all the rules about the sabbath and you they're, they're all backwards you completely misunderstood the purpose of these laws he says you can help a woman or, or you can help an animal you can help a donkey but you can't help heal this woman what kind of sense does that make you guys can't see the forest for the trees you cannot understand exactly what should be happening here because you're so obsessed with your laws 
If you were to go over to chapter 14, just one chapter over, he has almost the exact same conversation again. He says, if your ox falls in a ditch, will you not get it out? And the answer is, of course, I'm not going to leave my ox there until tomorrow. I'm going to do all I can to get it out now in order to take care of this animal. And Jesus says, so why would you not heal this lady? And the answer to this is because they had forgotten the purpose of the law. They thought in keeping their definition of the law that they would receive a cure for what ails their hearts. That the law was the medicine, not the MRI. Do you see the difference there? What they thought is that in looking at the law, if they kept the law, it would be the thing that would make things better for them. It would be the thing that would make them holy before God. That if they could do these certain things, God would look at them and say, look, you guys are awesome people. But the purpose of the law was not to make them holy. The purpose of the law was for them to understand who God is and where their hearts were. And so what happens is whenever they are working so hard to keep the law, and no matter how hard they worked, nobody was able to keep it. Nobody was able to keep it perfectly. And so when they were working so hard to keep the law, what they don't realize is they were telling on themselves. And so the law, what became the, the, the MRI, even though they didn't intend to use it that way, it began to expose them for who they were. And who they were is people that worked for God's favor. They had put their faith in something that had no power to heal them or to free them. Just as the MRI was not meant to be the cure, they had trusted something to save them that was never meant to do that job. They had trusted in the law. And in doing so, they had forgotten about the character and the nature of God, the reason the law existed in the first place. So Jesus recognizes this, and he says, you misunderstand the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath is to make us understand our limitations, to make us recognize our need, to make us remember our salvation. Yet you've turned it into a means for salvation. And that is never the purpose. He says, I'm telling you, if you understood the point of the Sabbath, you'd rejoice with this lady. But instead, you rejoice in the law. Verse 17, it says, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things that he was doing. So Jesus heals this woman, and in doing so, he makes the, the ruler of the synagogue and the Pharisees that were watching mad because they think that he has done something that he is not supposed to do, that he has done something that, that breaks essentially one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, you misunderstand the point of the commandment in the first place. So what does this mean for us? How do we, how do we apply what happens here in Luke 13? Does this mean that Jesus just trashes the Sabbath day and just says, forget it. Just for, forget all of these laws. Forget all of it. Everything has changed now that I'm here. Just listen to what I've got to say, and you don't have to worry about those laws at all. 
And so for us, does that mean that I can just go home and I can build a deck and I can go shopping at Walmart and I can do whatever I want? I can do any of these things that if I had done them in the Old Testament times in the context of Israel, it would have gotten me killed, which is the the punishment in the Old Testament for not observing the Sabbath, is that you would be killed. Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about the Sabbath. Should I be worried about the Sabbath? Well, first off, Jesus never said that the Sabbath was off the table for us as Christians. And on top of that, he says that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Instead, that he has come to fulfill every single part of it. But how can he say that if he doesn't seem to observe all the stuff that's in the Old Testament laws and certainly doesn't honor the Pharisees and all of their rules as well? He says this because the law was never meant to be the cure. He was. The law was always meant to point us to him. And this is the whole point that he is trying to make. What Jesus does is he tells us how to appropriately read the MRI, how to read the law. And then he says, this is what it says about you. And then he says, and I'm here to cure what you've just learned about yourself, which is that you have broken this law. So what does the Sabbath say about the hearts of the Jewish leaders in the synagogue it says they sought the cure in all the wrong places that they believed if they could just get the observance of the law just right they would be good to go they would make god proud they would earn their place in this covenant they would earn god's favor and jesus tells them they are as in, are as much in bondage as this old disabled woman And instead of celebrating their record as Sabbath keepers, they should be celebrating what Jesus is doing right in front of them. They've gotten it all wrong. And so it goes with us. The Sabbath today serves much the same purpose today. Much the same purpose as it did for Israel in the Old Testament. Though we are not bound to the Old Testament law in the same way as those who were under the Old Covenant. That is true. For us, when we see the Old Testament law, it is instructive to us about who God is and about who people are in general and even who we are. And so today, the Sabbath is meant to do the same three things it was meant to do in its original context. It's meant to teach us about rest. It's meant to teach us about our limitations, and it's meant to teach us about redemption. But it doesn't look like observing strict rules about what you can buy or about what you do. It all comes back to Jesus. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews goes into this long argument about the Sabbath and what it was about about how Moses' followers didn't ultimately get the rest that was promised uh, in the Sabbath because they failed to be obedient. And then the writer compares that to those that are obedient and are faithful to Jesus. It's a pretty complicated passage, but you get to the, 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 the point that the writer of Hebrews is making in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. 
He says, therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. So the concluding point that the author makes is that if we have entered God's rest, God's Sabbath rest for his people, then that means, that means just like God rested from his works, we have rested from ours. And this is the ultimate point in the Sabbath and how it finds its fulfillment in Christ. For there is not labor that humankind has, has, has undertaken as persistent and as universal as the labor that we take, undertake in order to justify ourselves. Whether you know God or not, your conscience and your creation bear witness to your own failures. I don't have to convince you that you do not measure up. I believe that that is true. I do not have to convince you that you don't even measure up to your own standard of morality, let alone to God's standard of morality. I don't have to convince you of that truth. And every religion in the history of the world is about trying to figure out how to work ourselves into justification before a God that they don't even know. Work is built into our understanding of, the, of, of, of atonement. But the Sabbath points us to a place where we can rest from that work. Where we can trust in God, just like the psalmist said, where we can lay our head down in sleep, even more so in death, and trust that he will keep us safe. This is the ultimate promise of the Sabbath. That the, the works are, that, that, that his works are sufficient for our salvation, not ours. That in laying down our efforts, we are putting our faith in his efforts and that he is enough. The whole idea here is that Jesus is our rest. One of the things that gets kind of thrown around a lot to try to sort through some of this stuff is that, that Sunday is now our Sabbath as Christians. Um, but that's not really the accurate way to say that. In the New Testament, Sundays is what is called the Lord's Day. It's never called the Sabbath in the New Testament. It's simply called the Lord's Day. And it, the Lord's Day has never had the same restrictions of rest tied to it that the Old Testament does in the Sabbath. Why? Because our rest is found in Christ. And so this principle of rest and recognition of our limitations is a good one for us. It is still instructive for us today. But ultimately, it is meant to be a pointer for us, to point us to Jesus, that our work is done. That our limitations is our sin, and that our redemption is Christ. And so the Sabbath still, say, still serves all those same purposes. But we are not bound to the letter of the law because Christ has fulfilled that. The way that the, the writer, that Paul says it in Colossians, is that the laws are a shadow. And that they are meant to point us to the greater reality of who Jesus is. And so all of those Old Testament laws, 
they are not obsolete and they aren't just dismissed. Jesus says not one jot or tittle passes away. So it doesn't mean that they're all obsolete and they're dismissed. What it means is that they are instructive. And they are intended to point us away from the shadow, away from the MRI, away from the diagnosis, and to the cure, which is Jesus. So when you read that Old Testament law, whenever you read that law about the Sabbath, what it should encourage you to do is to say, all right, what does this tell me about myself? Which is that I need to rest and I have limitations. What does this tell me about who God is, that he has redeemed us? that he has set us free. And then what does this tell me about my atonement, which is that our works are not good enough to atone for anything, that Jesus satisfies all of those things. And so in Luke 13, what Jesus is saying is you've misunderstood the purpose. We can celebrate a woman being free of bondage because the whole point here is that the Sabbath would teach you about who you are and who God is. And God is happy to set this woman free. And that really the people who are most in bondage in Luke 13 is not the woman with the ailment. It's the Pharisees who are bound to the law. Jesus says, let's rejoice. Like all the others that rejoice there over all the glorious things that Jesus is doing. And let's not be the Pharisees that say, yeah, but, 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 but you can't do that. It's not allowed. And Jesus says, let me tell you. Let me tell you about how I can cure all of this and free you of that bondage. Because you can't work hard enough. You can't do enough. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the message of Jesus there from Luke 13. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession this morning that we are a people who work for your favor. We do it so inconsistently. We do it so poorly. We do it almost unknowingly, trying to justify ourselves when we feel the weight of guilt and sin. Help us to be a people that look to you and that find our rest from those works in you. When we feel the weight of sin, when we feel the, the pain and the brokenness of sin, help us not to run to the law to be good enough to earn your favor, but instead to run to you the one who satisfies, gives us rest, and allows us to lay our heads down and sleep at night and one day in death, fully confident in the work that Jesus has done. In Christ's name we pray, amen.